Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with a legendary party photographer of the Nautis. Telling the day in the life is sort of what I was really so passionate about is like, okay, we might start in some friend's apartment. We end up at a party and, you know, sneak into a public pool at the end of the night. Plus, the latest from Pakistan's former prime minister, Imran Khan. As for what might happen next, the only sensible bet in Pakistani politics is against the straightforward and transparent outcome that everyone is broadly okay with. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And to start the show, we have a few stories from Ukraine. Sitting just 40 kilometers from the border with Romania and having suffered no direct airstrikes so far, Chernivtsi is one of the cities seen as a safe haven for many. Carlota Ribello met writer Kate Tsurkan and urban planner Boden Starek for a snapshot of the city in the second and final part of the Urbanist Special Report from Ukraine. As we approached the last few days of our journey through Ukraine, we made our way to the southwest of the country. Departing from Kyiv and a 15-hour train journey later, we arrive in the city of Chernivtsi, described as the de facto literary capital of Ukraine. I'm Kate Sarkhan. I'm an American writer and translator in Chernivtsi. I took you guys on a tour of uh, Chernivtsi National University. It's a beautiful castle and students still get to study here. So uh, we just went into the church, which is one of the best preserved churches in Chernivtsi. In Soviet times, it was used to house computers. And today we can walk around, look at the icons, which were painted by an Austrian. Chernivtsi University was built by a Czech architect. So it's really this Bukovinian decadence, as I like to say. The region of Bukovina, which Chernivtsi is a part of, was the most ethnically diverse province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you had not only Ukrainians, but Germans, Hungarians, Poles, Romanians, Jews living together in quite relative harmony, which also means you had some really great writers like Paul Celan, the famous uh, Jewish-German poet, Olya Kobylanska, the famous uh, Ukrainian feminist naturalist writer, and many, many other, Aaron Appelfeld, many, many names. And uh, this kind of uh, cultural diversity is, I think, what made Chernivtsi a great melting pot of ideas, cultures. And today it really continues. You have an international literary festival in Chernivtsi every year where writers from all over Ukraine and all over Europe come, or all over the world, actually. It's uh, got a lot of beautiful cafes where young, aspiring writers hang out, and it's just, yeah, it's a place of literature. That melting pot of cultures that Kate describes there continues in Chernivtsi today. In fact, the war has prompted a new wave of people from all around the country who chose to relocate here. Sitting just 40 kilometers from the border with Romania and having suffered no direct airstrikes so far, Chernivtsi is one of the cities seen as a safe haven for many. Here's Kate again. They have a population of around 250,000 people in peace times and more than 100,000 people came to Chernivtsi after the start of the invasion, which is insane. It's almost doubled the population. Um, and basically, we had people from Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kyiv, uh, from all over coming to seek refuge in Chernivtsi. I would say that there's less people here now than there was when the invasion started. What I said I really noticed was that even in this like coffee-to-go stands, there were lines of people, and you really understood that there was so many more people here than usual. And we'll see like what happens. This war, unfortunately, it will last for a long time, so it might happen again when we have waves of refugees coming, but hopefully now the city infrastructure will be even more prepared than before. It's uh, good for Chernivtsi because a lot of people who never have been here and maybe even never wanted to come here, they come here and see this city and now they have like a second home here and I think that they will come back here because like a lot of people came here from Kyiv, from uh, Kharkiv and as for now they are back to their homes but I think that after the war ended they will come here again just to walk to be a tourist and they will feel like a home here. 
That's Bogdan Stariuk, an urban planner at Chernivtsi City Council. He's been working on a project to transform some of the city's streets into pedestrian areas. He told us more about his vision as we walked around some of the areas where this urban intervention is taking place. It's a pedestrian street for uh, weekends and uh, weekdays. And I hope that in the future, after the construction of that square, that's a Soborna square, uh, this street has to be fully pedestrian after the reconstruction of this street. And also there are a few more streets that have to be repaired as a pedestrian in the future. So later, like I think in a few years, there will be no car 24 hours per day because we have like a city concept till the 2030 and the concept says that that street must be pedestrian uh, seven days per week. Usually in most cities when you try to implement these pedestrian zones and to change the street's dynamics sometimes ends up leading to a bit of a revolution in the mobility and public transport. Are there also plans to perhaps invest in a transport network so that people don't drive as much? Yeah, sure, we have. Uh, we see the problems that if we close some street for cars, we have to give something instead of that. And for sure, it have to be like a public transport, uh, like a infrastructure for a bicycle and uh, other micro mobility. And we are working on that. Like we have the main street of the city, like right there. That's the whole of Nas Street. That the street goes from the one part till the other. It's the longest street in Chernivtsi. And now uh, we are making the project of uh, renovation of uh, rebuilding that, that street. And it also will be more pedestrian friendly. Like for sure we will have the cars and uh, trolley buses and buses. But also it will be more friendly for pedestrians and bicycle drivers. Okay, let's go like on the other right. And uh, there are a few projects that city are working right now. Like just a few moments ago we go through that one little street that became also pedestrian uh, seven days per week. And I hope that we will reconstruct it also this year already because it's very small, but we can make a big change with the street. Before saying goodbye to Bogdan, I had one final question. I wanted to hear why he thought it was important to carry out this work while the war is going on instead of using the money towards the military or aid. Here he is again. I was asking this question to myself also for a few times. Is it the right time to do the pedestrian zone right now during the war? But I think that yes, because uh, I want people to come here to Chernivtsi feel more comfortable here. And soldiers that are from Chernivtsi, I want them to come back here in Chernivtsi and see better cities than was before than they left. So that's why we are still, at least I'm still working with that, with the pedestrian zone, with other projects in this sphere. I want them to see the difference between that was and the that now, because we have to move closer to Europe, not only with the EU, with the money, with the economics, but also how does the city look, because all of us was in the Europe and we see the nice cities, we're friendly cities to people. And I want Trinity to be also a people-friendly city. In the early hours of the morning on the next day, we hopped on a small van taking us across the Ukraine-Romania border. Within a few hours of departing from Chernitsi, our passports were stamped and just like that, our journey through Ukraine came to an end. There are several things that will remain with me for years to come, but perhaps the most striking was the duality of living with war, finding a moment of happiness every day to get you through the night. For Monocle in Ukraine, I'm Carlotta Rebello. And also all this week on the Monocle Daily, we've peeled open the pages of the new issue of Monocle magazine and delved into our special report from Ukraine, as this week marked six months since Russia launched its full-scale invasion. For part one, we turn our focus to the National Railway of Ukraine, which has played a crucial role in keeping the country moving during the war. Monaco's Karlota Rebelo caught up with Oleksandr Pertsovsky, the head of passenger rail services in Kyiv, to find out more. She started by asking him how his job had changed since the beginning of the war. The goal is still the same, it's moving passengers from A to Z, safe, happy, reliable manner on a certain time schedule. Fundamentally, it's the same. Of course, many things change. So number one, 
especially the early weeks and months of war, we had to focus on just making sure that we fit as many people as possible. Our stations were overcrowded. The rail car that would normally hold between 36 to 54 people, depending on the setup, would be filled with 200 people. Even the area for luggage was effectively occupied by kids. So at that stage, we canceled ticketing. We allowed people to board freely in extraordinary numbers, and then we rerouted all the trains and everything. So, of course, number one change was dealing and coping with this huge increase spike in volume. Uh, Number two, we significantly increased our international travels and set up immediately a lot of links with our neighboring countries because aviation was cut even before the war started a few hours before that and we had a call also in the very early hours with the Minister of Transport of Poland who kindly offered like that they were able to do whatever it takes and we agreed that something that normally takes months negotiating different slots for trains we just did it on a daily basis and uh, put as many trains as possible to Poland to Hungary there were special trains to Czech Republic and, and the rest number three we did a few special projects for the medical cars, for the food distribution, and uh, this is, of course, you know, I never had to deal with moving wounded uh, soldiers or civilians. Now, like also in the record time, we transform some of our normal rail cars into uh, the special purpose vehicles. Speaking about the evacuation trains, they're still running at this moment, of course, not in the same full speed and so many as before. What are some of the practicalities that go into organizing that, not necessarily just with you know the bordering nations, but even within Ukraine itself, connection between regions and to get people out of the most affected areas? Interestingly, that while in the early days of evacuation, the key task was to get as many people on board and transport them. Now, uh, the trick is to convince more people to evacuate, specifically from the Donbass area where it's heavy shelling. So what we're doing now is working with the local authorities to get actually people who, for many reasons, refuse to go, or even some people are returning. So to convince them to actually evacuate when it starts getting like really hot. Uh, for that, we introduced a few initiatives that go you know, far beyond just uh, poor transportation. We are, together with uh, Ukrainian postal services, offering special cash payouts. Also, we are helping with housing. Our train attendants, they have uh, tablets, have access to certain database, and while people are still on the go, we are selecting the potential place for them to be greeted there upon arrival and put there. This really helps different volunteers, local governments, to convince these people to go. So it's an interesting transformation. Yeah, it's difficult to get all these people out. Unfortunately, in many cases, only these special initiatives pass when something just you know, arrives right next to them, convinces them to go. But we have to do that. We, for example, we took the night train, the sleeper train from Lviv to Kiev. And one of the things that we noticed on the trip, of course, is these subtle elements of security, you know, tape on the windows. The stations, when we stop at night, are completely dark. You only have light for a few seconds and then darkness again. Perhaps could you tell us a bit more about what are some of the precautions and some of these considerations about ensuring that the railway continues to operate and continues protected so that it becomes less vulnerable to potential attacks. A few you already mentioned, so this thing with the tapes on window comes with, uh, unfortunately, like painful experience. We did have a few casualties when there was a blast like next to the train, and we learned with the experience that the glass is the highest hazard. So that's why, indeed, we did the protection tape on all the windows, and those where we have like wind shields, they have to be closed. Uh, light masking, that's also applied. Important uh, protection measure that kind of not good for the railways because we always strive for speed, but here we limited speed. We now have a speed limit of just 80 kilometers per hour, which is painful because, as I said, we always fight for being faster. But we took this step because uh, this allows, uh, well, first of all, if there is some track damage for the train uh, driver to notice it earlier. 
second of course the braking path is much much shorter at this this speed another aspect is uh, medical training for the personnel so we thanks to different partnership distributed quite advanced medical kits first aid kits to pretty much all our trains train captain have more advanced Every train attendant has simpler ones, but it's important to train because some of them are so advanced that you, know, you really need to understand how to apply it. And last but not least, what we did, well, firstly here at the Kiev rail station, but we're probably going to expand it, is we deployed airport security to do the checks here. It's an interesting collaboration with the airport authorities because like, we have a lot of qualified guys who are trained how to x-ray bags and uh, notice all the security threats, like idle, because airports don't work. But we felt that uh, currently a lot of people carry arms and so on. So we introduced it now, we x-ray bags. And with this, we try not to compromise comfort. So it's never, it should be taking more than 10 minutes to cross this line, but we introduced that as well. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own, and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8 a.m. Zurich time, 7 a.m. in London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Curator, Monocle 24, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Also this week in Ukraine, people marked the country's Independence Day, aimed tight security. Large-scale gatherings have been banned by the government in Kyiv over fears that Russia could launch fresh attacks. It comes on the same day Russia's invasion of Ukraine reached the six-month mark, as I've mentioned before. Monocle's correspondent, Olga Tokariuk, sent us this dispatch from Kyiv. <laughs> One year ago today, I was sitting under the scorching sun at Kiev's central Maidan Square, in the front row of the press area, watching a massive celebration of the 30th anniversary of Ukraine's independence. Tanks and other military equipment rolled past crowds on Khrushchev Street, and the biggest cargo plane in the world, the Ukrainian-made Mria, roared above our heads. Fighter jets left a blue-yellow trail in the sky, the color of Ukraine's now-famous flag, and military delegations from 14 countries marched next to Ukrainian servicemen and women in a show of solidarity. President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered a passionate speech congratulating Ukrainians on the restoration of the country's independence, as he put it. We are a young country with 1,000 years of history. We are descendants of a powerful state in the center of Europe, he said referring to the medieval state of Kyiv Rus. In an apparent hint at Russia's neo-imperial ambitions, he said Ukraine would not let anyone, quote, occupy its history and annex its heroes. Zelensky stressed Ukraine will continue to fight for its citizens who lived in the territories occupied by Russia, Crimea and parts of the Donbass region. The mood was festive and the crowds were huge. After the parade was over, I spoke to people on the streets. A young woman from the Luhansk region, whose family still lived under Russian occupation, told me she discovered her Ukrainian identity only recently and for the first time felt the urge to attend the Independence Day celebrations. She proudly showed me her Vyshevanka, a traditional embroidered shirt 
that she crafted herself for this occasion. A man with his wife and children next to him said he felt these were historic yet difficult times for Ukraine. He said he liked the idea of holding a military parade, which was criticized by some at the time, because Ukraine had to show it had a strong army and could defend itself. Another elderly woman told me she wished the war would be over soon and that she was no longer speaking to her relatives in Russia. We used to be brothers with Russians, but now they kill our boys at the front line every day, she said. As I looked back through my photos and reread my notes from last year's Independence Day, I couldn't help but wonder what happened to these people and what they would say now. Since Russia's full-scale invasion began exactly six months ago today, at least 5,000 Ukrainian civilians and 9,000 soldiers have been killed. I dread to think that some people I saw at the parade last year might be among them. Ukraine now has 20% of its territory under Russian occupation. The Maria plane, which impressed adults and children so much, was destroyed in the first days of the invasion. There are no public celebrations of Ukraine's Independence Day this year because of the danger of Russian missile strikes. Instead of Ukrainian military equipment rolling down the central street of Kyiv, there is an exhibition of burned and destroyed Russian tanks. People take photos, climb them to install blue and yellow flags, curse and ridicule Russia's initial plans to take Kyiv in three days. Making a mockery of the enemy feels uplifting for many in these dark times. The war is not over yet and it's too early to celebrate. But Ukrainians remain adamant about defending the independence that has already cost them so dearly. We head to Ethiopia now. After five-month humanitarian truce, fighting has again broken out between government and regional Tigrayan forces in northern Ethiopia. Joining us on the line from Addis Ababa is Samuel Getasha, a freelance journalist from Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, the TPLF was in government for 27 years in a coalition laid by them uh, until 2018, when this prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, came to power. But since then, uh, most of the leadership have been transferred into Makali, which is the capital of uh, Tigray region. They've been having disagreements and all kinds of stuff. Um, and finally, two years ago, uh, a conflict uh, began, a conflict that has truly affected millions of Ethiopians. Uh, millions of Ethiopians are displaced. Uh, famine is becoming a reality in this country. Um, and the conflict continues uh, into its second year uh, come November. So after this recent truce period, why has fighting now broken out again and how intensive is it? Well, you know, they're blaming each other. Uh, the Ethiopian government is saying they started it. Uh, the other side is saying the Ethiopian government started it. But um, there has been misgivings. There was an effort to bring some kind of peace by the U.S., by the European Union, uh, even by China, and including the African Union. Um, it was supposed to be a begin uh, in a few weeks. Uh, they were looking at locations. Uh, but again, uh, it's a conflict where um, even the media has no access to. Um, we have all kinds of information we can't even verify. So with an era of misinformation and so on, it's really difficult to verify what's really going on. But what we know for a fact is millions of Ethiopians are being um, victims and there's thousands that are heading to the Sudan as a result. And it had felt like Ethiopia had made some real progress over the past decade from some dark times. But what is the humanitarian situation now in the region? Uh, to those uh, that lived in the 1980s, uh, you know, you all remember the famine of the 1980s where the 
um, you know, millions of, uh, you know, the world, including the UK, was raising money and so on. I think we're, it's becoming a clutch 22. We're embracing that old era of where victim, where, um, you know, Ethiopians are being victims to famine and starvation um, and conflict. So it's really been a clutch 22 for many of us that grew up in that era. Mm. And I mean, what do you foresee coming in the next few months? Is there any chance that this might once again go back to the ceasefire or is this going to intensify? You know, it's really difficult to know, uh, but where it's headed right now is really uh, worrisome. Uh, you know, there's no compromise. Um, you know, the two actors are even disagreeing on every part of this conflict, including who starts. Uh, who's provoking it and so on. I mean, if there's going to be a peace um, peace agreements of some sort, there has to be respect and um, between the both sides. But there's so much mistrust. Um, and I think even, um, you know, those donors that are trying to help Ethiopia are really, really being, um, they're frustrated. Um, you know, the head of um, uh, WHO, uh, Tedros Adhanom, spoke about, uh, you know, racism being involved and where the world is ignoring what's happening in Ethiopia and focusing on the Ukraine. The reality is, I think the world is becoming tired, um, you know, trying to, um, you know, help Ethiopia, assist Ethiopia in every misfortune, every conflict. It's been generations. I grew up in the 1980s and Ethiopia was going through the same thing. Um, and as you mentioned, Ethiopia was beginning to change. It's a country where the Nobel Peace Prize came to this country uh, a few years ago. But we're going back to an old era, and it's really, really worrisome, and the world is beginning to be tired of uh, the problem in Ethiopia, I think. Yeah, I mean, you, that's what I was referring to, the Nobel Peace Prize. And then, you know, you think about the memories of the 80s, the Band-Aid single, all of that, and it's a catch-22. I mean, how should the international community respond this time around? I mean, we don't expect uh, Bob Geldof to release a song and, you know, raise Hopefully millions not. of uh, money for Ethiopians. Uh, but I think the world needs to engage with Ethiopia, try to understand this country, what's really the root of the problem of this country. The country was beginning to change and it's going back. And it has a population of at least 115 million uh, people. From the perspective of EU, if you don't stop this conflict, it's... Africans that are heading to your soil, even from this perspective, their own self-interest. I think Ethiopia needs to work for the interest of the world. Uh, you wouldn't want Ethiopia to be like Syria or South Sudan or even Somalia, but there's a possibility that it might be headed that way. And I think the world needs uh, leadership and the leadership should really be focused in Ethiopia as much as it's in the Ukraine. Uh, and end this conflict that's really, really affecting millions of Ethiopians. Um, and the famine issues, it's not just happening in the rural part of this country, it's even coming to, the, to Addis Ababa. Um, the inflation, um, you know, um, the land grabs that's happening in this country is really, really worrisome. And finally, one part of the Ukrainian conflict, though, that world leaders can't take their eyes off is the fact that it is the breadbasket of Europe. There has been delays in grain shipments getting out, uh, and that is affecting food prices everywhere. But particularly when it comes to the aid that, you know, whilst you say you don't want to be sort of dependent on it anymore, it does need to get to people there starving in Ethiopia. Uh, has there been a struggle, do you think, to get the food aid needed into the country? Well, WFP is um, bringing um, uh, food from uh, the Ukraine. It's arriving in a few days. Um, I think it's at Djibouti, uh, Djibouti port at the moment. But the Prime Minister of Ethiopia uh, has said that Ethiopia will be in a position to produce enough grain and be able to export enough to other countries. Um, obviously, WFP thinks otherwise. They're even saying more people will be uh, facing famine next year. So again, with this kind of information, the difference between different actors is really, really worrisome. Uh, they don't even agree on Ethiopia's potential to produce grain next year, the UN, I'm, I'm saying. Um, and, there, and 
part of the UN is focused on the Ukraine, the WFP had to cut some of its funding from Ethiopia and send it to the Ukraine. I don't think it's racism, but I think the Ukraine, we've never seen the Ukraine compromised the way it really is at the moment. And I think the world is really, as I mentioned before, is really confused about Ethiopia. You can't have the same kind of problem for generations. And that's what's what's happening in Ethiopia. And that's why there has to be a peace uh, engagement uh, before Ethiopia becomes like Somalia and so on. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator. Now it's time for the Foreign Desk Explainer. This week we look at former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. He has been charged by police with breaching the country's anti-terror act. Andrew Muller explains what this is all about. We start with the unending political turmoil in Pakistan. The observation that Pakistani politics is a high-risk endeavour is not an original one. But any scrutiny of the fates of its office holders since the country's foundation 75 years ago is nevertheless astonishing. The Wikipedia page entitled Assassinated Pakistani Politicians has 44 entries. And though it does include three members of the Bhutto family, it excludes Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, presumably on the technicality that he, though after an altogether dubious judicial process, was executed. And this is to say nothing of those who have been arrested, jailed, exiled, overthrown or undermined, a cohort which might require not merely a separate Wikipedia page, but a separate Wikipedia. Moving up the rankings of Pakistani prime ministerial mishap this week is Imran Khan, who has managed to get himself charged by police with breaching the country's anti-terrorism act. As of this broadcast, he seems likely to appear in court later this week, after which the spectrum of possibilities ranges from this turning out not to be much of a thing, at least until the next thing, to being a very big thing indeed. Elsewhere, Pakistan's media watchdog, the excitingly named Pakistan Electronic Media Regulatory Agency, forbade forthwith the live broadcast of any of Imran Khan's speeches, which, ruled PEMRA, are prejudicial to the maintenance of law and order and likely to disturb public peace and tranquility, which is quite the thing to say about someone who was running the country five months ago. At which point, a brisk recap. Imran Ahmad Niyazi Sahib ne 174 After many years cultivating his honest populist outsider shtick, Imran Khan became Prime Minister in 2018, when his Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf Party, or PTI, won that year's general election. By this past April, he was a little over a year away from becoming the first ever Pakistani Prime Minister to complete a full five-year term. The resolution for vote of no confidence against Mr. Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan, has been passed by a majority. But almost as if observing tradition, Pakistan's parliament, in which the PTI's majority had been whittled by defections, tabled and passed a vote of no confidence in Khan's government, removing him from office. Sub-editors around the world rejoiced at the opportunity to conjure headlines making crashing reference to Khan's pre-politics career as a fine international cricketer, indeed captain of Pakistan's national team. He'd been hit by a bouncer, bowled by a googly, caught out, stumped or any number of other metaphors for having one's innings curtailed. But in cricket, you know when you're done. The rattle of your stumps as the ball scatters the bales, the deathly thud of a straightening delivery into your pads, the agonising snick off the edge of your bat, followed by the wicketkeeper's bellowed appeal. Indeed, a gentleman walks back to the pavilion, bat cradled nobly under one arm, stoic expression adorning the visage, without waiting for the umpire to raise a finger. 
In politics, there is always the temptation to stand your ground, refuse, if you will, to leave the crease. The job of a prime minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going, and that's what I'm going to do. Since being unloaded by Parliament, Khan has succumbed to this temptation. He has lent heavily into a line of populist, indeed downright Trumpist, paranoia, fulminating at a deep state and or international plot to thwart the will of the people as, naturally, personified by himself. They can try to steal the election from us if you count the votes that came in late. And this is what dropped Khan into the soup in which he is presently thrashing. On Saturday, Khan gave a speech to supporters in Islamabad in which he elaborated on his vexation at the recent arrest of his chief of staff, Shabazz Gill. Gill was taken in, accused of inciting rebellion, inveighing against state institutions and so forth. He has accused police of torturing him. Khan, in his Islamabad speech, accused cops and judges of being in on the general plot. Islamabad IG. Islamabad Inspector General and Deputy, we will not spare you. We will file a suit against you. You all should be ashamed of what you have done. In more established democracies, such as, to pick a completely random example, no real reason, etc., the United States, when a given politician commences wanging on about the deep state, the swamp, the blob, or whatever nefarious conspiracy they believe to be scheming against them, they can be safely dismissed as any or all of a huckster, a bungler, a whiner, a crank, or a plain and simple idiot who has no idea how anything works. But in Pakistan, the possibility that Khan has a case does have to be acknowledged. He has accused Pakistan's powerful military of behind-the-scenes involvement in his removal, and it would hardly be the first time. If Khan's downfall actually was or is in any sense a coup d'etat, it would be, depending on how you count these things, maybe Pakistan's tenth actual or attempted such intervention. As for what might happen next, the only sensible bet in Pakistani politics is against the straightforward and transparent outcome that everyone is broadly okay with. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And a highlight from my show, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Mark Hunter, a.k.a. the Cobra Snake. He was a legendary party photographer from the noughties. He tells me more about his new book. So when I first started, I, w- I was a true fan of this world. And so if a band was playing, I would go and purchase the ticket and I would wait in line like everybody else to go see the artist play. The thing is, I would sneak the camera in and that was sort of my my secret weapon. And so some of those early shows like the Yaya's and Kings of Leon, they're playing in rooms that you couldn't imagine. So small, a couple hundred people max, and the energy is just alive. And so bringing the camera in and not only shooting the band, but turning around and shooting the crowd is sort of what set me apart from everything. And the fact that you could go online the next day and sort of relive those moments was a very sort of early idea of like what we have as social media now. And there was a sense of fun as well. Maybe it's the way you photograph people. Do you? Because I don't think you kind of tell, okay, you have to pose this way. I think it's fairly spontaneous. Is that your style, right? Yeah, totally. It's a very candid energy that I like to capture. And the thing is that, again, nothing is very contrived. I'm just sort of a, a photojournalist documenting what I see. And one of my favorite pictures, and, and again, and, and that's the sense of fun I find, that I think it's a Louis Vuitton bag full of kind of sugar-free Red Bull. I don't know why. This, <laughs> it, it, I, I thought it was a brilliant photo, actually. Yeah, you know, and I think that actually, you know, the thing is, the sort of silly moments in mm. between going to parties or telling the day in the life is sort of what I was really so passionate about is like, okay, we might start in some friend's apartment we end up at a party and, you know, sneak into a public pool at the end of the night. And so you're seeing that whole story arc. And obviously Red Bull was a huge sort of conduit to the party. And so you couldn't go anywhere without some Red Bulls in your bag. And Mark, your book as well, it's almost a study of celebrity as well, because it's so interesting to see a picture of, you know, Lady Gaga having fun. I mean, I say Lady Gaga, there's Katy Perry, Amanda Lapore, Peaches, which I love. You know, it's quite hard. I don't see it today. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not reading the right places. But they were quite relaxed and not caring, perhaps, what other people would think of them. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think with those early images of these superstars, you really get their true persona. And it also like sort of should trigger something in your mind if you were around at this time, because you can think, oh man, I remember I saw those like photos similar to what Mark might've shot, but on TMZ or on, you know, these sort of trashy celebrity blogs. And here you're seeing such a more intimate moment where they're connected with me and, the, and sort of our situation. Tell us about what do you, I, I don't know, I have a feeling that some of the aesthetic that we can see in your book is kind of coming back. People, there's a little bit of a rejection of this, you know, perfection on Instagram. Do you see that? And you see that with positive eyes as well? Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of that. You know, it's been coined like the indie sleaze movement. There's this idea that what was happening in the 2000s, let's celebrate that. And that was, everyone is beautiful. Size, shape, you know, it didn't matter. You could be a little bit sweaty. You could be a little bit messy. And that was cool. Like the thing is, we've gotten so wrapped up in, in our image and sort of controlling our image and, you know, editing our images and manipulating things. What happened to us? 10 years ago, we didn't think like this. So I really support that, you know, stuff like the American apparel aesthetic. It was a simpler time. And I think a more sort of inviting energy. Do you still take pictures like this? I mean, I know you're involved in all sorts of projects, which I would like to find out a bit more, but I mean, are you still a photographer at heart? Yeah, yeah. I've actually been re-inspired by the, the new generation and I've been out a lot more shooting in New York City, parties in Los Angeles, hoping to travel internationally again soon, just it's been a little bit tricky. But yeah, I mean, the party's back and there's a whole new... What I say, like, there's a whole new gen now that we're going to look back at the photos that I document and stuff that's on social media. And in 10 years from now, I'll be like, wow, that was crazy. And so I'm here supporting it. And I want to see how we can sort of evolve and grow the culture. No, that's nice that you're talking about also this new generation, because I was going to ask what was the, the best part you've ever been that perhaps have been documented in the book. Could be a recent one, perhaps. Maybe it's not uh, necessarily from 10, 20 years ago. That's a tough one. But, you know, like truly what I think about the best or, you know, when there's all those sort of like top 10 lists is more I'm like, let's make the best party. And so when everyone regrets, oh, I wasn't around in the early 2000s, I'm like, well, you're around now. So there's no better time than now. And truly, I'm seeing that happening and that energy is coming back, you know, with some of these late night raves, warehouse parties, art shows. There is a sort of a new guard that's taking over and carrying the torch. And Mark, I love a physical object, so I'm very happy that I have all your images in this wonderful book as well. But at the time... Where could people could see your pictures? It was uh, via your website, right? The Cobra Snake. But were any publications also interested perhaps to print some of your pictures? What was your connection with them or was just exclusively on your website? Yeah, well, I owe my success to the internet. The fact that I was able to upload hundreds and hundreds of photos that spread, you know, worldwide. Thank you, the internet. But my true passion was with, with traditional print media. That's how, you know, I grew up looking at magazines, you know, watching television. And the thing is, the internet was a new concept. One of the main sort of early accomplishments I had was that the LA Weekly, which is like the local newspaper that would have all the arts and culture information, ended up hiring me to have a column. And so I went from figuring out what parties to go to in the LA Weekly to then shooting for them and having a weekly column. So print has always been very exciting for me. I think it's, again, something that has a different feel and intention. And it's already exciting with this book. It's with Rizzoli, the distribution's insane. And so it's all over the world and I'm getting people DMing me that they got a copy in Tokyo or in Lisbon or Greece or like all these uh, places around the world are now having, uh, you know, the copies of the book. And I mean, we spoke about the positive side, you know, this candidness of your photography. But what about, were there moments where you were a little bit worried or perhaps someone didn't actually like the picture? Were there any situations like this where they say, oh, please, can you remove the picture from your website? Have you ever encountered that? Yeah, you know, again, a lot of the time, I don't even know the full story behind you know, people's interactions. And so, you know, there might be a, a couple making out 
and I'll get an email the next saying, oh, that's not actually my girlfriend, but how would I know? You know, so again, I, I oblige all, you know, I, I don't mind removing any photos because again, I think it's, it's nice to celebrate this time. My lens is there to, to celebrate and capture things and not make things look bad. Besides the, the website Cobra Snake, what, what other projects are, are you involved? I know you've worked even with fitness for a while, right? Yeah, T- tell us yeah, a bit yeah. more. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, totally. You know, after, you know, many, many years of living in the nightclub, I realized, you know, I got to sort of see what's going on in the day. And that's where I fell in love with hiking and being outside and running and started Cobra Fitness Club, which I was sort of like the hipster Richard Simmons, you know, sort of inspiring people that might not have traditionally worked out to, to get outside, to be in nature, to get sweaty and create sort of that party energy on the top of a mountain. Besides that, you know, I was running a pretty successful vintage store for many years, selling, you know, the nostalgia that I grew up on and also have sort of like moved into the ideas of working on some sort of documentary projects and maybe even a TV show if, if things go well. So really excited to sort of see how this 2.0 version of myself can take on the world. Oh, that's fantastic. Mark, listen, a pleasure talking to you and congratulations on the book as well. It's really, really nice. Kind of almost, I felt a little bit nostalgic as well. So it was just... Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I hope everyone can check out the book and, you know, I hope to be back in the UK soon to uh, do some kind of book signing and enjoy the rest of the summer and, you know, keep partying. Keen for some well-informed company to take you from your suite to your sun lounger this summer? Well, the Monocle Companion is out now. Packed with 50 inspiring essays to improve everything from your vacation to your vocation, our first ever paperback is packed with long reads, inspiration and cheery ideas to make you happy. Head to monocle.com for more. And we also have a lovely recipe for you here on The Curator. It's by Australian chef John Javier, whose latest restaurant, The Tent, recently opened in London. Hi, my name's John Javier. I'm the executive chef, The Tent, on Little Portland Street. And I'll be sharing with you the recipe for birani. So it's quite a simple recipe. Basically, we get whole large beetroots and cook them in water can also roast them in the oven if you like it less watery. In the restaurant, we boil them in salted water. We then peel the beetroots and blend them into a puree. Overnight, we also get Greek-style yogurt and we hang it in cheesecloth until all the whey drips out of it. This normally takes 24 hours. And then once that process is complete, we combine the blended up beetroots, yogurt that's been hung and has now become labne, tahini, salt and a touch of sugar. We also mix some raw garlic cloves that have been grated into it and you should end up with a bright pink beautiful tasting dip called birani. And on this week's Monaco on Design, the heritage Italian hatmaker Gravi has been keeping the well-dressed looking sharp for nearly 150 years. Monaco's Ivan Carvalho visits the Gravi workshop in Tuscany. The sounds one encounters when stepping into the Gravi hat workshop haven't changed much since the business began operations in 1875, here in Signa, just outside Florence. A handful of veteran seamstresses dutifully work in silence, using foot pedals on antique sewing machines to assist them as they construct the brims of classic summer hats for the family-owned business. Silvana Grevi, who together with her siblings, Roberta and Giuseppe, is part of the fourth generation who now oversees the family's fashion brand. When we trim a hat, it's, uh, we make like a, when a tailor makes a jacket, so the, the band is sewn by hand on the hat and it's cut one piece by hand and sewn by hand on the hat. 
so it fits the head perfectly. And that makes the difference that the head is more beautiful. Silvana walks me through the different departments, where staff sew, cut, and iron materials together, typically made from natural origins, to create their hats. In her office, I meet Roberta Grevi, who oversees the creative side and helps devise new models for men and women each season. For the summer, Roberta believes in hats that are breathable and portable. What I'm looking for is fresh materials to let air in because summer is getting hotter each year, so it's really useful to let air get in because sometimes hats are really too hot in the summer. And it's true that it, it, with Grevy, you're known for using natural materials in yes. your hat construction. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, our materials are all natural, uh, such as hemp and straw and raffia. And that's very important for us to use materials of our tradition. So I, I see here, Roberta, this latest hat that you're designing uh, with these little perforations in it. Just explain to me what, what this is made of. Uh, this is a, a raffia net, which is a very typical material in our Tuscan tradition. And that's what my grandmother used to make hat of. And I've always seen it all my life, and I like it very much. It's a light material. Another advantage of our hats is that they are always soft and foldable, as the one that I hold in my hands, that you can fold and put in your pocket or in your bag. And then you open, and it, you can have the shape again. Grevy's classic styles for men and women have long been sought after, and have even graced the big screen. From covering the head of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, to period films set in Tuscany, such as Franco Zeffirelli's Tea with Mussolini, their short and wide-brimmed hats have made a fashion statement. During the latest edition of Pitti Uomo in Florence, the premier menswear fashion fair, Grevy was hosting buyers in its new boutique in downtown Florence, where Roberto and Silvana's brother, Giuseppe, greets men's retailers keen to order their lightweight summer models, such as their pinstriped bucket hat, or a tribli in abaca with a leather strap band. Ecco, io suggerirei questo qua, perché questo è un cappello di, di paglia di Firenze. As with previous generations, the Grevy siblings are proud of their made-in-Italy provenance, as they continue to carefully update their classic looks for today's customers without betraying their roots. From Monocle, in Florence, I'm Ivan Carvalho. That's all I've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>